Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for November 21st, 2022. Here's today's rundown. Healthcare providers are swimming in shark-infested waters. It's a sea of turmoil for America's healthcare system. Hear about it right now in live reports from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. John K. Hall, Marie Steinbach, and Adam Brendan. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Well, first up is another discussion from an Internet user group and unrelated to the rapid descent of Twitter. In this case, someone reported that they had some of their total joint replacements audited by the recovery audit contractors, and they were denied based on medical necessity for the surgery itself. What was wrong with the cases? The RAC was unable to find the radiologist's interpretation of the x-ray to confirm the presence of radiographic evidence of arthritis. But that's a problem because that is not a requirement of any LCD or guideline and is not even the standard of care. In most cases, the patient sees the orthopedist in the office. The orthopedist performs the x-rays at that time. They then interpret the x-rays themselves and document the findings in their office notes along with other clinical information. All that information is used by the orthopedist to determine the need for surgery. Orthopedists are qualified to read bone imaging, and there's no reason in the office setting for the images to be sent to a radiologist for interpretation. In fact, to do so would result in an additional claim to Medicare which could be viewed as medically unnecessary service and should be rightfully denied. And apparently the RACs have in some cases convinced the ALJ that it is a requirement and the ALJs have upheld the denials. If that happens to you, do not accept the denial. If the orthopedist documented the findings, even if it's simply within the body of the office note and the findings demonstrate advanced joint disease, keep appealing. And if this becomes more common, you may even consider sending the actual images on a CD or electronically transmitting them so they can interpret the images themselves if they're not happy. It's just not acceptable for these auditors to be continuing to make up their own rules. And speaking of that, WPS released a summary of CERT findings of total joint replacements. But in this case, they were looking at the admission status. To quote WPS, the CERT found that inpatient stay was not reasonable and necessary as there were no documented perioperative complications for documentation to support medical necessity for a stay past this first midnight. The procedure can safely be performed in in the outpatient setting. Now, within seconds of reading that, I was composing an email to CMS complaining. That is not what the regulations say. The admission decision is not based on the occurrence of a complication, but the risk of complications. A clinically supported and properly documented one midnight inpatient admission for surgery is perfectly compliant if higher risk exists. Now, fortunately, this notice involved both the CERT and a MAC, so it actually received some attention. If the CERT was auditing charts correctly, then they'd be rightly upset that the MAC is describing their review process improperly. 
And if the CERT, a nationwide contractor, was auditing charts incorrectly, then that's a big deal. I've been reassured that this is being addressed and certainly hope the outcome supports proper compliance with the regulations and proper communication of those regulations. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Solutions, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. The OIG came out with a report on November 17, 2022, that pointed out the overuse and noncompliance of psychotropic drugs and maintenance within nursing homes. What does that mean? Well, it means there's going to be audits. So psychotropic drugs are the new low-hanging fruit. Now, it's not just the prescribing of the psychotropic drugs. It's also the medicine management. For example, M0064 is a brief office visit to monitor drugs. In 2019, OIG found that a higher use of psychotropic drugs was associated with nursing homes that have certain characteristics. Nursing homes with lower ratios of registered nurse staff to residents were associated with higher use of psychotropic drugs. Nursing homes with higher percentages of residents with low-income subsidies were also associated with higher use of psychotropic drugs. Additionally, over time, the number of unsupported schizophrenia diagnoses increased and in 2019 was concentrated in a relatively few nursing homes. Specifically, OIG found that from 2015 through 2019, both the reporting of residents with schizophrenia and the number of residents who lacked a corresponding schizophrenia diagnosis in Medicare claims and encounter data increased by 194%. In 2019, the unsupported reporting of schizophrenia was concentrated in 99 nursing homes in which 20% or more of the residents had a report of schizophrenia that was not found in the Medicare claims history. For hospitals or nursing facilities, well, anyone or any entity who prescribes psychotropic drugs, write down the date that this OIG report was published because if you're audited down the road for psychotropic alleged overuse, any prescriptions that were prescribed before November 17, 2022, should not be counted against you. And why is that? This guidance that just came out was not published until November 17, 2022. You cannot be held liable for unintentional miscoding or unintentional overprescribing psychotropic drugs when the guidance was not there, nor you had no knowledge that it was occurring. You would also have to check the defense of you can't be held liable for violating guidance. You have to be liable for violating the law. And I have not checked whether this particular psychotropic drug issue is found within statute, regulations, or law. But if the issue is not found within statute, regulations, or law, you should not have to pay back unintentional mistakes. You're probably thinking, so Nicole, you're telling me that we have to keep track of every OIG report, date, and issue that's published. That's impossible. 
Well, it's not impossible. Just hire a lawyer to do it for you. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about eight minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Marie Steinbuck, Adam Brennan, and Dr. John K. Hall. It's Monday. It's November the 21st, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference for 2023 is in Orlando, Florida, April 17th through the 19th at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel. The event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management, clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, and C-suite leaders with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is truly one of a kind and has become the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Speakers include outstanding thought leaders from the profession, as well as nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click on the ad on the RAC Monitor homepage, or go to acpadvisors.org to register. Here now with a Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning, and what could be risky today? Good morning, Chuck. It's relying on the Medicare manuals when you conduct legal research. Over the years, we've done a number of segments discussing how only statutes, regulations, and national coverage determinations are binding, much like Nicole just mentioned. Now, I know that people often struggle with the fact that language in a Medicare manual may not establish a legal requirement, but it doesn't. And I want to give a wonderful example involving the two midnight rule. This would be a great topic for the American College of Physician Advisors. Let's say you can't find a written order for a hospital admission. You crack open the Medicare manual and you read this. The regulations at 42 CFR 412.3, that's the two midnight rule, require that as a condition of payment, an order for inpatient admission must be present in the medical record. Now, the, tech use, the text uses the magic words, condition of payment. As a result, any reasonable person would assume that a missing order necessitates a refund. But that reasonable person would be totally wrong. I've said many times that one should never refund based on the manuals alone. You always need to work your way up the regulatory ladder, starting with the regulations and then the statutes. The manual helpfully sends you to the relevant regulation. Remember, it's 42 CFR 412.3. Now, here things get a little bit complicated because I want to point out a sentence that was deleted from the regulation back in 2018. So that sentence used, well, it, it read, this physician order must be present in the medical record and supported by the physician admission and progress notes in order for the hospital to be paid for hospital inpatient services under Medicare Part A. Now, I want to repeat that that sentence was deleted. At the time, CMS explained, specifically, we are revising the inpatient admission order policy to no longer require the presence of a written inpatient admission order in the medical record as a specific condition of Medicare Part A payment. If you want to find that, it's at 83 Federal Register, page 41761. So the regulation used to require a written order but in 2018, that requirement was deleted. What's up with the manual? Well, unfortunately, the manuals haven't been updated to reflect the change in the regulation. 
The last update was on March 10th, 2017. The change happened in 2018. I should add that the update purports to be that the manual change that happened back in March of 2017 purports to be effective January 1st of 2016, 14 months before it was issued. Now, don't get me started on the purported retro application of the provision. So an oral order is sufficient to justify a patient admission. Oh, and if you're thinking, hey, why didn't David say a verbal order? The answer is that I try to be really careful with words. Anything with words is verbal. A magazine article is verbal. If you want to distinguish the spoken word from the written paragraph, you need to use the word oral. So with all the Taylor Swift news and a strike at Starbucks last week, I was tempted to use Taylor Swift's blank space as the song. A shout out to star-crossed Starbucks lovers, because I misheard that lyric all the time. But instead, I'm going to go back to December, because someone at CMS should be thinking, I'd go back to December, turn around, and make it all right. That is, they'd go back to December 2015 and write a timely manual provision. Then, in 2018, they'd update the manual to reflect the changing regulation. Maybe the CMS manual writer is on hold with Ticketmaster, but they'd certainly drop the ball on this one. So remember, never refund off of a manual alone, and I'll close by wishing all of our listeners, as well as the esteemed Chuck Fox, a happy Thanksgiving. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, David, very much. And a happy Thanksgiving to you as well. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is Maria Steinbuck. Good morning, Marie. And what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, listeners. I am a loyal listener of Monitor Monday, and I am delighted to be here this morning to cover for Tiffany while she is on vacation with her family. Last week, Tiffany reported on the limited amount of charity care that was being provided to patients in hospitals and health systems. Today, it would only be fair if we followed up the discussion to cover a report on private health plans and how they are faring on social spending barometer. Kudos to Dr. Hirsch for dropping this idea in our box. All right, so last week it was noted that half of all hospitals spent 1.4% or less on charity care for their patients. Well, according to a recent report on trends in social spending by private health insurers published just last week, and it will be provided in my article out this week, between 2017 to 2021, the top 20 private health insurers spent approximately $1.87 billion in social spending, with the top six national health insurers making up 72% of that share in contributions. If we compare apples to apples, this is 0.11% of net income in 2017, 1.6% of net income in 2020, and then down again to 0.67% in 2021. I am suspicious that the increase in spending during 2020 may be tied to the pandemic, which is why it was down again in 2021. It is no surprise that despite the national reports on health plan spending over the last three years, 
their contributions have barely made a dent in their net income. While health insurance premiums have continued to increase about 4% year over year. Now, what, what did the 1.87 billion go towards in the last three years? The report found that most of the spending went to support housing programs at 1.2 billion for investments in affordable housing units and grants targeting housing insecurities and homelessness. The second highest spend was around 237 million, which went to donations for food banks, meal distribution programs, and nutritional public health education. It was interesting because as a case manager and knowing how hard it is to get patients to and from appointments for care, let alone to get them home from the hospital, transportation is consistently the most prevalent spend for hospitals and patient assistance funding. However, for the health insurers, this was the lowest category ranked for social determinant of health spending. So today I would like to ask a comparative question to last week's segment. Do you think health insurance companies are giving enough in charity care for your community? Yes, no, or unsure? And I have always wanted to say it, so here it comes. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Marie, very much. That was Marie Steinbuck. Marie is substituting this morning for Tiffany Ferguson. Marie is the Chief Operations Officer for Phoenix Medical Management, and we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, the Monitor Money Legislative Update with Adam Brenman. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Adam Brenman. Thanks very much and good morning. Following results of the midterm elections on November 8th, We've now entered a lame duck congressional session where Congress meets after a new Congress is elected, but before its term begins. The phrase lame duck typically signifies a Congress or president with diminished influence and little time to enact new policies. In other words, their capabilities are limited and their days are numbered. But lame duck sessions can vary significantly. In some cases, congressional leadership may try to close the book quickly on must-do policies and begin focusing on January. In others, leadership might see a final opportunity to impact federal policy before the gavel changes hands. For this year's lame duck session, there are a handful of possible scenarios. The bare minimum would be that Congress temporarily funds the government but postpones passing a full budget, along with a few required extenders negotiated on a bipartisan basis in advance and packs up early. However, this departing Congress is faced with a host of time-sensitive policies where failure to act could have consequences. And how Congress approaches these items is likely to shape the fate of other legislative initiatives in the queue. Here are a few healthcare-related variables to watch. The COVID-19 Public Health Emergency, or PHE, has several notable federal policies tied to its duration, either through statute or the use of emergency authorities provided to CMS. This includes Medicaid continuous enrollment and Medicare reimbursement for certain telehealth services. Although the PHE is likely to be pushed to at least January, the lame duck Congress could urge the Biden administration to end it sooner rather than later even if the president has promised to veto any such legislation. 
Physician fee schedule base rates are another key variable to watch. Several years ago, CMS finalized changes to the physician fee schedule designed to increase payments for primary care services. However, CMS was required to make these changes budget neutral. As such, CMS's payment change caused a drop in the base payment rate for all services, referred to as the conversion factor. In each of the past two years, Congress has intervened at the end of the year with one-year patches designed to prevent these base rate cuts from going into effect. Congress will be asked to do the same again this year. And Congress must act on this. Otherwise, the cuts will take effect January 1st, And as reference, last year's rate cut delay cost roughly $6 billion to Medicare in the federal budget. Finally, we should be watching for potential movement on Medicare Advantage prior authorization, which Congress could take up during the lame duck session. Earlier this fall, the House, but not the Senate, passed legislation that would put new requirements on Medicare Advantage prior auth programs. The bill would require the establishment of electronic prior authorization systems and set timeframes for health plans to respond to prior authorization requests. However, the legislation proved quite pricey with a $16 billion price tag over 10 years. CMS itself will be imminently publishing a proposed rule that would make changes to prior authorization in Medicare Advantage, Medicaid Managed Care, and commercial plans sold on the ACA marketplace. This may be a sign that regulation is an easier path than legislation for this particular issue. Ultimately, when critical or large legislative vehicles start moving, it's not surprising to see other issues, like the ones mentioned previously, tacked on during the lame duck session. Alternatively, Congress could also just pick up bipartisan issues already debated or otherwise vetted earlier in the year in separate packages, such as an existing mental health package with bipartisan support, a recalibration of Medicare payment for diagnostic testing, and payment adjustments for low-volume and Medicare-dependent hospitals. So make sure to stay tuned, because this lame duck session should be interesting to watch with so many potential issues to address. Thanks, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Adam. That was Adam Brenman. Adam is a legislative analyst for Zealous. And coming up, the astonishing audit of critical care billing at Leahy Clinic in Boston. It's an audit conducted by the OIG. That story is next, but now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, here's Marie Steinbuck. Thank you, Chuck. So the question was, do you think health insurance companies are giving enough in charity care for your community? The results, I don't think, are too surprising. The Answer yes was only 9.2%, no was 66.8%, and 23.9% of you were unsure. Uh, We do know that the focus on the social determinants of health need to continue to be an increased focus for patient support, and that the payers will begin to reach deep into their pockets to help but to meet the needs of our community. Thank you. Thanks, Marie, very much for your survey. This is Monitor Monday. It is 23 and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone. Stand by. What are the consequences for changes to the inpatient-only list? Which COVID-19 waivers will continue to be in effect? And what are their regulatory implications? Don't be caught off guard. 
Register today for an essential regulatory update. Your presenter, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, always prescient and admired, will discuss crucially important regulatory implications found in the Outpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule. Dr. Hirsch will also report on complex compliance issues associated with the No Surprises Act. In addition to previewing the new year, Dr. Hirsch will help put your mind at ease by offering specific steps you can take to strengthen your regulatory compliance and ultimately protect your facility's fiscal integrity in 2023. The Office of Inspector General for the Department of Health and Human Services conducted an audit of critical care billing at Leahy Clinic. Some are saying this is an astonishing audit. Here now with this report is Monitor Monday's own attorney and physician, Dr. John K. Hall. Good morning, Dr. Hall. Good morning and thank you, Chuck. Well, historically, most of us thought critical care services and billing were straightforward. The patient's sick in an ICU and an ICU doctor is caring for him. How could this not be critical care? Well, Based on the OIG's recent audit at the Leahy Clinic, common sense use of critical care codes has ended. The July publication reports the review of 10 inpatient admissions covering 92 critical care services. The OIG concludes that all records contained at least one non-compliant critical care charge and that 54 services were either medically unnecessary or the physician did not provide services consistent with critical care billing. The OIG claims Leahy should reimburse $6,015. As an aside, I have to wonder why the OIG wasted much more than $6,000 and likely forced Leahy to spend much more than that as well, but that's for a different day. The OIG intended to perform an extrapolated audit of about 5,000 admissions. At some point, the OIG changed its mind and decided to review only the 10 judgmentally sampled claims. As listeners know, this judgmental sampling precludes extrapolation. It also means that all of the preparation for the extrapolated audit was wasted. The change also reduced the at-risk amount to less than $15,000. It's hard to imagine that the OIG, with all of its experience, could not have known that such an audit would be resource-intensive and may cost more than it could possibly recover. But let's look at the findings. The OIG's expert relied on a very strict reading of CPT codes 99291 and 99292, specifically the definitions of critical illness and critical care. Treatment qualifies as critical care service only if both the illness or injury and the treatment being provided meet the requirements. So how, according to the OIG, did Leahy miss this? Well, in one case, the 99291 was billed two days after ICU admission, and the record indicates that the patient's condition was serious, not critical, and the review and the patient was, quote, responding well to treatment. The independent medical review suggested the correct level of care should have been 99233 or a level three subsequent visit. In another case, the OIG claimed 99291 was improperly billed on the day the patient was transferred from the ICU. So based on the Leahy report, we can make some predictions. These audits are unlikely to be widespread at tertiary care centers. Second, I suspect that each record would have to contain at least five errors in order for recovered dollars to surpass review costs. Next, Max and racks are likely to jump on this, but they will scrutinize claims that have more than nine, one 99291 charge on a single day or a 99291 charge on the day of ICU discharge. That would be an automated edit. Finally, 
Switching to other E&M codes makes a wide range of services independently billable because the 99291 is a bundled charge. This could actually increase reimbursement to providers. This is a truly ironic outcome of the OIG's audit. Finally, I have some recommendations. All records coded for critical care charges must include all of the required elements and need to be reviewed in real time. And finally, the internal controls should ensure a pre-bill review of high-risk records such as ICU 99291 on the final day of ICU confinement, anytime the record indicates the patient is stable, or anytime there is more than one 99291 code for the same day. So to paraphrase one government official, Who'd have thought healthcare could be so complicated? Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hall. That was physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall. David, we got a couple of minutes for some Q&A. Let's take a look at some of the questions or comments that have been coming in. You bet. So, Dr. Hirsch, you sent me a great comment uh, in the chat about my segment. Please share that with our listeners. Well, my comment was that in the Medicare Benefit Policy Manual, Chapter 1, Section 10.2, it states that even if there is no admission order whatsoever, if you can establish intent, you can bill as an inpatient admission. And I'm asking, Dave, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. I think, so, so that language was added, I think, in part, um, uh, it was around the time that this 2018 uh, change to the regulation happened. And I think that the language you're talking about intends to address that regulation. They just failed to fix, because my the sentence I quoted came from exactly the same broad section, right? It's the opening sentence, yours is at the end. It's like they forgot to fix the beginning when they fixed the end. So the language that you're citing is super helpful, and I would point to it as a means of, I, I, you know, if they kind of explain, if you can tell that the doctor meant to admit the person, consider them admitted but they failed to fix that opening sentence that says that a written order is a condition of payment. So it was an oops, a pretty big oops. And thanks for pointing that out, Ron. Quick question from Joe, which is, are commercial carriers legally bound to make charitable contributions? And I would say, certainly not to my knowledge, I guess one does, I don't know all laws out there, but I would say private companies are generally not required to make any contributions. That's something that um, you know, tax-exempt entities have to do something for the public good. That Even that isn't necessarily a contribution. You can do it through education or other contributions to the public good. And I think that's all we've got time for, Chuck. So I will turn it back to you with one more Thanksgiving greeting. Thanks, David, very much. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Money. A special thanks to our outstanding panelists that you heard this morning. Adam Brenman, Nicole Emanuel, of course, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Dr. John K. Hall, and Marie Steinbuck. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to join me tomorrow on Talk to Tuesday. We're going to be reporting on patient safety indicators. That's, of course, very important information for your team. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week and happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.